0: Once the trust is there and there feels like there's a partnership and I'm not a number or a dollar sign, the world is your oyster. And I think there are certain entities, whether we're talking family offices or ENFs or something like they don't want a million relationships and line items. So they're very likely to go back to who they already work with and say, what else can we do together?
1: That's my big takeaway from this, is the collab. I think our industry sucks at collaborating, really. Inter-boutique, but what you hit on is even more important, which is with your allocators, with your clients, you can launch funds with them. If they want something and it fits into what you do, they will help you stand up a fund. You don't have to go find a cedar. You don't have to go give up economics to some group. Just work with the people that you're already working with to see what else you can do. That is the definition of a true fan. That when you create something they are in, they wanna know about it. Hey, my name is Stacey Havener. I'm obsessed with startups, stories, and sales. Storytelling has fueled my success as a female founder in the toughest boys club, Wall Street. I've raised over $8 billion that has led to $30 billion in follow-on assets for investment boutiques. You could say against the odds. Yeah, understatement. I share stories of the people behind the portfolios while teaching you how to use story to shape outcomes. It's real talk here. Money, authenticity, growth, setbacks, sales, and marketing are all topics we discuss. Think of this as the capital raising class you wish you had in college, mixed with happy hour. Pull up a seat, grab your notebook, and get ready to be inspired and challenged while you learn. This is the Billion Dollar Backstory Podcast. Today, we're going to bust a myth wide open. There's a narrative out there that says the only allocators that invest in boutiques are small allocators. You know, the ones not managing very much money, the ones that maybe aren't that sophisticated. Wrong. Flat out wrong. Today's guest has worked for some of the largest RIAs and family offices in the world, managing double-digit billions and more. And guess what? They still allocate to specialists, boutiques, and startups. So don't drink the arsenic cocktail of rhetoric out there. Today, we're serving you a glass of hope. Straight up, no chaser. Today's guest is one of my dear friends in this business, John Tenero, who has been researching managers for over 20 years and still believes that a healthy ecosystem includes bigs and boutiques. You definitely want your notebook for this one, my friends. John is going to give you the real talk on how boutiques can win business from allocators. It's real talk, but here's the thing. It comes from the heart. John also really cares. Let's dive in. Welcome to the Billion Dollar Backstory podcast. I am here in the studio with my very dear friend, John Tenero. John, thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited. We you know what's cool about this podcast. I love that I get to introduce all my sort of podcast listening friends to my friends in the industry. And today is yet another day I get to do that.
0: Well, I feel honored to be here. I have seen who you've had on this podcast and I feel humbled by it. At the same time, I feel like we've known each other for a long time. I'm glad you didn't say my old friend because I'm starting (laughs) to feel old these days, but it's exciting. And I think we both love to share what we're thinking. And I think this is just an awesome venue to do so. So thank you to you and to your listeners.
1: Yes, here we go. So I always want to start with my favorite thing and that's stories, and particularly backstory. And I find, especially in our space, what's so interesting about this is when I say to people, did you always know you wanted to be in the investment business kind of doing what you're doing? Sometimes the answer is yes, but a lot of times the answer is no. So kind of tell us your journey to get where you are today, sitting there in Annapolis, Maryland with at least four or five pieces of Annapolis paraphernalia around you. (laughs) Did you always know you wanted to be in this space?
0: Absolutely not. What you can't see on my wall is a picture I did in fifth grade, which was like, draw what you want to be when you get older. And it's like a stick figure of a football player, a basketball player and a soccer player. So clearly I had ambitions of being a professional athlete. I think by the time I turned 12, I realized that dream was not going to happen. And probably came up with a few others, but in all seriousness, absolutely not. I don't even think a few years in to the investment world, I thought I was going to be an investment professional, but there was probably some inklings there because I thought about this. And when I was a kid, both my grandfathers passed before I was born and my father's mother passed when I was super young. So I really had one grandparent and she kind of had to assume the role of four, especially as grandfather slash grandmother. So as a kid i used to sit with her and watch new york's mets baseball games that's what she wanted to do she was a dodgers fan they moved to la she became a mets fan and i would just sit with her and two things kind of came out of that watching very specific details about the game which later translated into stats every morning the next day i'd read that one page that was in the sports page that had every stat the standings the batting averages field goal percentages, all that stuff, and it just stuck with me. I still remember records and scoring averages and things, and it just stuck with me. So clearly there was some sort of statistical piece to it. The other nice thing was my grandmother you know, would share parts of history with me during games, almost subconsciously, because I was always drawn to things in history that I just didn't know about. So she would share about an experience she had at a game something that she looked at during the game, she would point out certain things during the game, not to teach or coach me, just kind of as an observer. And I just have always been a sponge and soaked it in. So I think when I look back to there, that was probably an early sign of like something was there. And then fast forward to college, like so many of us in my Gen X, we got there and it was like, I'm going to go into business, which is like the most broad, thing in the world. And one of the classes I had my first semester freshman year was economics and at Fairfield University, where I went to college, the economics path was in a separate school than the business school. So my advisor basically said, and who was an economics professor, if you want to get into economics, you actually have to switch schools and kind of you'll have a different set of electives. And I did. And what I really liked about economics was I felt like business was all math and science. And economics was that, but also art and history. And it had that kind of combination of the two, because when you really think about economics, it isn't just math and science. There is a perspective of it, uh, learning from the past, thinking about the future and how you kind of envision things and kind of prepare for things and, and how important that is. And, and then the next semester, I took a class, which shows you how dated it is, what it was called microeconomics in third world countries, which we now refer to as emerging market countries. But in the late 90s, it was called third world countries. Boy, have we <laughs> come such a long and short way. But it was such an interesting class because it taught me like how different things were in other places. You know, This is really before globalization really kicked off. This was before there was really the internet. So we didn't really have access to this. And I was learning about Countries like Egypt and so forth. And, you know, that was my country that I was assigned to do this whole kind of report on, and just being like amazed of like, they can't just turn on the faucet and water comes out and, you know, like these simple things. And then how it actually impacts their economy, their government, their society, their culture. And it just rang so, like, huh. So those are two kind of big things. I mean, then there's, there's always the little things, right? Like walking along a path at my parents' house and seeing, random trash on the side of the walkway and just being like, it took somebody just as much effort to throw this out of their car than it was to just keep it in their car. And that's kind of where a little bit of their environmentalism started or, you know, little things like that really weren't gearing me up to be an investment professional, but clearly was getting me to be an investment professional with kind of this alternative also kind of agenda, which I'm sure we'll talk about, but also gets into a little bit more of my ESG sustainability background. But one final thing I'll say is, you know, I actually have a pretty ordinary story. Like I don't have that kind of massive inflection point. But I think what's up here has always been abnormal or not the normal. I've always kind of challenged status quo, challenged authority, but not in like a negative way. But, you know, my parents very quickly learned the easiest way to get me to clean my room wasn't saying clean your room, John it was finding some other way that was more incentivized. So I just, I've always kind of believed in principle, believed that there isn't one side of the coin, there's many sides. And, and I think that has been always really applicable and helpful in the investment world and especially what I've done for the majority of my career.
1: Great, I'm gonna challenge you on one thing though, cause I'm your friend everybody's story is way more interesting and way more magical than they think. It seems ordinary to you because you lived it. And so I have like one of my unique abilities is being able to sort of pull that story out of people. And I and I want to come back to something that you said, but I want to set the stage a little bit too. So for people who don't know you, and they'll learn more about you in the intro, but one of the places where we bonded was over boutique managers because it was a passion for you. And obviously it's a passion for me. So I want to talk about that, but there's a layer down for you in your story. And I think what's interesting for me is that you mentioned sort of this purposeful investing and ESG and impact investing, which has always been important to you. Now, here we sit, you are a white male. (laughs) You fit a lot of the stereotype, of this biz, right? And yet the part of the industry that really, really has always lit you up is something that is kind of in, still very much in the fringe, so to speak, right? That sort of rebel part of the biz. And I wonder what that was like for you because I know in places you've worked, you were kind of the lone voice, the lone champion for impact investing. And I can imagine that that was very challenging to do when you were surrounded by other primarily white male individuals who probably were just like, John, can you just conform to what we want to talk about? We don't want to talk about impact investing.
0: Whew, yeah, it's been an adventure. I mean, I think even going before the purposeful investing, I, it might have been my first investment manager meeting. And I think I was at NEPC and I won't name the f- investment manager. But during the meeting, they were telling us, in particular, me, we're buying Enron, and we're buying it, and we're keep buying it, and it's a right thing to do. And this is, you know, now we look back and realize what a terrible idea. But at the time, it wasn't completely cratering, but it was, it had a bad stretch. And I just remember like having the courage to say like, what point do you pull out? You know, do you pull the shoe kind of thing? And I was basically explained that, like I'm too young to understand they're the professionals. and you know, it was six months later that Enron we all learned about Enron. That's not a story to kind of like see, I was right there wrong, but it resonated with me of it's so important to pause for a minute and to really kind of zoom out a little bit and say, like, what's happening here? Like, why are we just so willing and ready to accept what we hear as truth? And I think You know, part of the middle-aged white guy in our industry is you know a lot of the ways we do things have just been passed down. It's how we've learned, and it just is kind of a rinse and repeat approach, right, over and over and over again, or as I like to say, kind of copy and paste. And to my story about my parents and stuff, I've just never kind of zigged when everyone zigged. I was often zagging, and I think when you get into this idea of purposeful investing, which I think is we have a lot of debate over the lexicon and terminology in, in our industry. It's either an acronym or a cute phrase that serves as a marketing tool. But I like purposeful. My friend Karen kind of got me starting to use it. But it's this idea that it doesn't belong to kind of one segment or demographic of people. It's everyone is probably searching for purpose. And if you're not, you probably should be. But for me, I don't mind. I'm the devil and the advocate of devil's advocate. I will challenge and push and say, like, I just don't agree. But then I'm the first one to get your back, to lift you up, to be your voice if you feel like you don't have a voice. And I think that's always just been my thing. And I think there's a lot of people that aren't as fortunate as me. They haven't almost sometimes just walked into things that are pushing and pulling and and really yelling and screaming to get. Certain things just viewable. So I take it almost like it's not a privilege to do so, but it's like a responsibility. It's my accountability to say, like, okay, you're looking at it from this perspective. You know, it's a whole phrase, right? There's more than one side of the coin. There's actually many sides of the coin. You have the two flat sides and then the whole circumference. So depending on where you're standing, there's millions of perspectives. And that's the point, is I'm not saying this is right and you're wrong or you're right and they're wrong. It's more of like, let's just talk about it. And I think that's where areas of like diversity of thought in a room matters, because nine people saying yes to one person results in one thing. And I think, you know, for me with ESG and impact investing and purposeful, it's not saying it's just this, it's like this end. It's about this enhancement. And I guess I'll end with saying this too, like if any of us pauses right now, whether they go to their iPhone and look at the news or they put on the TV or look at the newspaper or go on the internet, can any of us stand here today and honestly say like, the world's in a great place, like everything's just firing at all pistons? Of course not. And some of us would argue that it's been deteriorating. Some of that to me seems to happen because we just keep rinsing and repeating and we don't stop, pause and say we need to pivot and go into a different path. and it's been challenging, but I, I think it's a it's probably a lot easier for me to stand up as maybe a white male in a room and, and scream than it is for somebody else who maybe feels like they don't have that voice or that platform to stand on. So I don't do it necessarily for those people, but I want to stand on their shoulders and that kind of idea.
1: And in doing that, you're actually letting them stand on yours because you said something really powerful there that I know anybody who feels underrepresented, I'm raising my hand, which you can't see if you're listening to audio. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> in, in the investment industry, you know, you're know you being a champion for people that need that. And that's, like I said, how we bonded over boutiques. So let's talk about that a little bit because one of the things I always loved in talking with you or in manager meetings we've been in is you, know, you ask really tough, smart questions, but you also help the managers you're meeting with. And I want to talk about that because so many boutiques struggle to basically succeed, survive. I mean, I don't know, like exist. And I want them to learn from somebody who has been in the seat at a consultant, at a multifamily office, at a single family office, who loves boutiques and can give this advice with peace and love, as I always like to say, which is, you know, (laughs) Let's talk about some of the things that boutiques can do better. And I think better was an interesting word choice I didn't intend there, because I want to talk about what makes an investment manager different. How an investment manager would say, like, if you said, tell me what makes you different to a manager in a meeting, what would they typically say versus what would you typically want them to be talking about?
0: It's a great question, and yes, let's just acknowledge like we both do have a passion for boutiques, but that isn't to suggest that that we're blind to other firms. I think you and I look for quality, not necessarily quantity, but quality can come in many shapes and sizes. I think different is super important, but different why, not different what, and different how. And that's my two questions. Most questions seem to be asked in our industry is the what and not the why and the how. And the why is so important, right? Like, why are you being different? For, I think for a lot of firms, different comes across as not as different as they think, right? Our portfolio is a little bit more concentrated, or we have a couple more people doing this, or we have this small kind of tweak that does that. And it sounds different. Like you said, our backstories, we think are, hmm, but they are unique and they are different. And I think that's the point right there is like, how have you personalized it? For me, firms that understand their identity that have conviction in their identity, they trust their process, they have faith in their process, they have faith in what they're doing. Then it starts to come out and it starts to look differently because then they're starting to say things maybe I haven't heard before or are willing to kind of perceive things in a different way. We've been taught this is how investment returns are supposed to be, this is how we're supposed to look at risk and volatility, this is how we look at allocation and the same people that kind of challenge that and say, well, you know, this is how we think about it and we're okay with being playing outside the box a little bit because we think that is is our opportunity cuz let's be honest you know this better than any of us like there's a lot of asset managers out there right more than we would ever need for everybody so to kind of get in the game and be like i want to be like them or i'm not really sure who i want to be you're probably already lost right like you're you're not going to kind of stand out and as a boutique it's you're already kind of fighting with one arm behind your back because you don't have massive resources. You don't have the ability to shout and have people hear you. You have to almost be intentionally, which is a word I will use over and over again, intentionally, you know, unique and and realize that you're not trying to be everything to everyone. You're doing what you do. And you're okay with the fact that, that might be one out of every 20 prospects, one out of every 50, one out of every hundred. And I know that's a risk, right? Like we're in a game where AUM does matter, but at, at what cost and and at what extent are you doing it? So I think for me, I look for firms that are different, not on what they can show me in a brochure or a fact sheet or a presentation or a performance return, but what they can share with me. And I know we'll probably talk a little bit more about that, but it is it is that more human aspect that I think differentiates firms. And, and again, I think boutiques have to be willing to have reasonable and rational expectations. And the answer might at the end of the day be, this isn't going to happen. Or maybe we need to collaborate with another small firm and make one firm. Because if there's 15,000 firms out there, you know, the mom and pop investors aren't going to hear of 99% of them. And the financial advisors are only going to focus on 10% of them. You never get to somebody who gets to 100% of them. So I think there isn't a perfect recipe to stand out. But I think you can start to sense when you're hearing something different. and, And maybe that's looking in different asset classes, different types of ways of doing things. And that isn't super popular. Like, we don't need another large cap strategy, to be honest. There's there's an unlimited amount. So maybe like if you're a boutique, you're like, that's not our starting point. Or maybe that's just not our opportunity set because we're not only going against other boutiques who have already been here, but the bigger firms and then the passive firms. And it's just like, you have to be honest with yourself and say like, where's the opportunity? But I think refreshing and fresh kind of hearing Things for somebody who's been doing this for almost 25 years, like it doesn't happen often, but when it does, I get the adrenaline pumps and the passion kind of reenters the discussion and and it's exciting for me. So, you know, I could go on and on about this and I'm sure we'll talk more, but I think that's kind of initial thoughts.
2: Are you an investment boutique looking to grow your business and need a little help? If you feel like you're fighting for the spotlight and, well, still stuck in the shadows of the bigs, join us in the Boutique Investment Collective, Havener's new membership community dedicated to the specialists in the investment industry. In the collective, we'll guide you through the billion-dollar blueprint we've used to help boutiques add over $30 billion in AUM. You'll refine your story, focus on your ideal target market, and practice your pitch. You'll rethink your marketing materials, rewrite your emails, and refresh your differentiators. We'll even help you step up your LinkedIn game and give your profile a makeover. You want to grow your biz, we've got your back. Learn more about the collective, the curriculum, and the amazing coaches who will help you on your journey. Visit havenercapital.com slash collective. High five. Hope to see you in a coaching session soon.
1: So many things there resonate with me. And what I really want listeners to hone in on here is specialization. And we really have to work with our clients on this sometimes because they break out of big firms. And what does a big firm have? Every flavor of everything, right? So when they break out, they think, well, okay, I can't have every flavor of everything, but I should have lots of flavors, as many as I can have anyway. And so they come out of the gates. It's a small team, talented team. And instead of picking one thing, they're like, well, one thing, what if that's not right? Let's pick like three or four things. And to me, having been in meetings with people like you, I'm like, but you're just mucking it up. Pick the one thing you're really good at. And is it fair for me to say, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but let's say I'm a boutique and I come to you and I say, I'm really talented at small cap value. Like I'm really, really good at that, right? Like that's my jam, micro and small. Like I just work right right here. This is the strategy I have. And you love it. You're like, I'm vibing. I need that. That's great. But there's something that maybe you're interested in exploring. Wouldn't you ask me? Wouldn't you say, oh, like, I know you have that. Do you, how far will you let the names run up? Like, am I going to catch some mid-cap in there? Or is this really going to just be... Could, have you ever run a strategy where you let it run a little bit farther? Because we don't want to have to sell you when it hits, you know, a billion and a half market cap and we have to find somebody to take mid-cap. We'd rather have our small cap manager run a little and maybe our large cap manager come down and market cap. But whatever, I'm making it up. Point being, I want boutiques to understand that allocators... We'll figure it out with you. You don't have to come to them with a menu of 18 different ways that you can help them. Just come with what you're good at and let the conversation go from there and be open to the things that they might want to explore with you.
0: Yeah. I mean, I always reference what you just described as, I think people, asset owners and asset allocators want partnerships, not transactional relationships. And I think too often we feel like we're a transactional relationship. It's the pitch and it's you're selling up front our investment returns and our reputation and all these flashy things. And I don't even know your last name and I don't even know who you are. So there's also that aspect. But a partnership means like we're hand in hand. To your point, we're going to walk forward together. And if all of a sudden I'm like, you're a kick-ass small cap manager, we have a need for something more mid cap. Like, would you ever consider... Seeding a new strategy with us and others for me, like it's an open dialogue because it's a partnership versus it's a here's some money, go invest it, and I'll talk to you at the end of the year, every each year kind of thing. And I think that's such an important aspect that successful boutiques understand. Also, that partnerships is like dating. If on the first date you're proposing to me, I'm running right? Versus like, let's get to know each other. And and that might be it. You know, it's just like, hey, I want to get to know you. And if you need more, I'm going to ask for it. You know, it's the amount of managers are like, well, I can give you this and this and this and this. And I'm like, if I need it, I will ask. I have a mouth. And if you know me well, I am not short on words. So like, I'll ask for it. But when you throw it at me, it just feels like you're trying to throw the whole kitchen sink at me. And then I kind of get that feeling of uneasiness of like, Why is so much being thrown at me? Like, what am I missing? And it just raises red flags, to be honest, versus like, I'm glad you got to know me. We were able to share our history of our firm, why we started this firm, why we're doing what we're doing, the actual, I don't want to hear your like slogan. We're the best because we're better than the rest. Tell me about your culture, details. What makes, why did people want to come? Why did you come to work here? Why are you still working here? What's going to keep you working here? you know again i know we're getting into some of the qualitative stuff but it's like that is authenticity that's intentionality but that's also a personal partnership that the door can open wider but you have to knock on the door and get them to even open the door right so i think that's such an important yet probably underappreciated and i know you know i won't speak for you but like that's what you've been doing for long before even probably we we met like it's been your thing of like I mean, that's part of this whole story aspect is like part of the story is like now we like trust each other because one final thing I'll say because I'm I'm over talking again, but like there's a lack of trust in this industry from the investor standpoint, from an allocator standpoint, from an asset manager standpoint, there's just like a cycle of kind of who do we trust? How do we trust? And again, building trust doesn't happen overnight. It's earned and it's earned over time. And I think- Once the trust is there and there feels like there's a partnership and I'm not a number or a dollar sign, the world is your oyster. And I think there are certain entities, whether we're talking family offices or ENFs or something like they don't want a million relationships and line items. So they're very likely to go back to who they already work with and say, what else can we do together?
1: That's my big takeaway from this is the collab. I think our industry sucks at collaborating, really. inter boutique, but what you hit on is even more important, which is with your allocators, with your clients, you can launch funds with them. If they want something and it fits into what you do, they will help you stand up a fund. You don't have to go find a cedar. You don't have to go give up economics to some group. Just work with the people that you're already working with to see what else you can do. That is the definition of a true fan. That when you create something they are in, they want to know about it.
0: And you know what else is an added benefit to all of that? Which I think is, if you were ever to ask me, like, what is one another thing that I would advise boutiques to do? I think when you've built trust, you've built a partnership, you've built this collaboration with your allocators and asset owners. One of the things I think that Managers don't do enough of is challenge back to demand more. Why didn't we get this? Don't tell me because, like, here's a top line reason or the investment committee voted again. Really, like, I want to know because this is what will help me so that I can get better. And if you have that partnership and that trust, you're gonna have more confidence to do so versus if I like don't really know you, you're gonna have this fear of like, well, now I burn that bridge and I'm never gonna get back in. But as an allocator, like I, I want to be challenged, and I don't think we do because I think a lot of decisions are made often not for the right reasons, and the manager needs to know that so that they're not making these kind of false assumptions of like, well, we didn't get it because X, Y, Z firm is flashier and they have more resources, or we didn't get it because we weren't enough of it. Like, don't guess. Go find out why and demand and say it's worth burning part of the bridge to find that answer because now we can either adapt to these feedback or realize that was an opportunity we never wanted in the first place and and good riddance kind of thing. But if you're having this fake relationship or this just insincere relationship, I think it would be hard to kind of say, well, why? Well, why? Keep going, well, why? Well, why? Well, why? So I think that's just another thing that my world needs to have happen to us because we've gotten very comfortable in our ways and very almost standoffish of like, this is the decision. Well, that doesn't help. Like We should also want to be providing. I know there's some discretion and there's some stuff that we can't share, but get to that line. Don't guess where the line is.
1: Yeah, that's so good. And let's go back to the trust thing, because you said something that I think about a lot, and that is, are you hiring? Are you buying a fund, which is what everybody thinks? Or are you hiring a human, which is what every business is actually about? and the trust piece has to be between people and that goes to the qualitative due diligence piece if you start with the people behind the portfolios the people behind the performance everything that we're you know that i'm about in this podcast is about then you can establish the trust then whether you win or lose the allocation if i am now your friend and I'm that small cap value manager and I don't get the deal. Then when I call you and say, "John, like what happened? Like I want to get better. Can you tell me what I need to work on? You are so much more apt to tell me because it's me and we're friends now. Then I'm just some logo on a pitch book that like came across your desk. And fund managers just don't want to believe that's true. That the qualitative is as important as the quantitative, even though allocators keep saying it it is true, studies show it's true. So how do you respond to that? Is it I mean, let's just say it again. Seven times to hear it once.
0: It's certainly true. To play the devil's advocate to that point, I get where there's some hesitation to that belief, because you know what? We've all experienced over the last 20 years the massive rise in passive investing, which does, for the most part, lack a lot of human. Aspect to it, it is we've created a methodology, and it's copy and paste, and you plug it in, and, and it happens. But you almost have to kind of segment that off to the side and say, but that that's not really our competition. That's over here. Somebody who wants that has made it very clear that's what they want. But for those that are saying, either I want to have a core satellite, I want to balance something out, or like I do want something more active, it is the humans because. I mean, if I was a star portfolio manager and you were invested in me, and I told you I'm leaving, you probably be like, "I might be moving my money." Not so. Why are you moving the money? Because the human is leaving, not anything else. So it clearly has to deal with the human. But I, I think we've become obsessed with you know, it's the old phrase, right? Past performance doesn't guarantee future results. Yet we make decisions based on what has already happened, and unless we have a Delorean and can go back into time and reinvest five years ago and get that kind of run up. Yes, past performance can help us potentially, but I need to believe that those who are driving the car are more important than sometimes the wheels on the car, whether we're going to get in an accident, whether we're going to get there in time, so forth and so on. So yes. And again, to your point, the relationship piece I can have with a human, I can't have with a computer or a button, as much as chat, GPT and all these AI is exciting, they're not human and the conversation is going to be different. So I think it's super important. It doesn't mean you ignore the quantitative stuff and it doesn't mean we do. And again, I'll be honest, there are a lot of me's that that is where decisions are being made. I I see it all the time where it's like, well, the correlation's too high. And I'm like, but you're using... Don't let data drive the decision. So part of it is back to what we were just saying before, like accept the fact that there's a human piece to it, but then also challenge us that aren't focusing enough or prioritizing that as well, because we're often making decisions on five-year correlations or here's the standard deviation of the last 10 years. And I'm like, but what happened during the last 10 years? Is that gonna happen the next 10 years? So I want to drive, I don't want an autonomous driver. That's what matters to me. Um, and I think that's what matters to people that are at your door. Um, if they're not at your door, then maybe you just kind of move aside and, and you know, hopefully at some point, maybe they come find you. But it's such an important aspect and it makes everything else have a lot more clarity. You know, it's, it's building blocks, right? So this is who we are. This is why we are founded. This is why we got into this. This is why we have the products that we have. These are the type of people we do. This is some of the stuff that we're doing outside of investing. Here's how we contribute to our community. Here's how we collaborate with other managers. Here's some of the groups that we're participated in. You build all this up. And then at the top is your quantitative piece. And that's when you're like, bam. Oh, and by the way, we're kicking ass. Um, and we're doing really good at this. Now I feel like, yeah, it all goes together versus if I came up to you, Stacey, and was like, I'm the smartest man alive. You'd be like, based on what? But if I had had a PhD in this and I'm a neuroscience and like built up to it, then you'd be like, well, maybe, maybe it's worth taking a closer look at. And I think the quantitative is a little bit of just, it's a statement, but it has not a lot of support and you need that support piece.
1: So if I'm a manager taking this all in, I guess what I would want them to walk away with here is it's not qualitative or quantitative. It's both. It's an and, not an or, just like it's big and boutique. It can be passive and active. There's room for everything. So it's qualitative and quantitative, but qualitative first, then back it up with the data. Like you'll get to the data. You will get there. And by the way, it is assumed, table stakes, that you're good at what you do. If you stink why are you doing that? How are you still, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. like, how are you still doing this? <laughs>
0: yeah. Right. Or guess what? The one thing that us analysts and allocators have access to is the quantitative stuff. You know what we don't easily have access to is the qualitative stuff. So that's the missing piece that I, I can. There's very few that don't have some sort of machinery or resource that says, here's attribution, here's performance returns, here's this and that, you even have it on your own website. So fact sheets and stuff like that. I can get that before a meeting. If I haven't, I'm not doing my job. It's that other stuff that I can't find. And even if I read, you know, your mission statement online and your philosophy, I want it to be alive. And that's your job is to make it alive so that it speaks to me and, and that it maybe resonates with me. And I say, yeah, we think alike. You know, now I can kind of start to work on your behalf.
1: That's my favorite part so far, because I I really think managers don't understand that. The allocators and the analysts can get the data. You're not telling them anything new when you take your fact sheet and walk them through all the data. Like, that's a waste of time. Don't do it. So we've talked a lot about how the boutiques and the asset managers can show up differently, more effectively, et cetera. Since you are the devil and devil's advocate, I wanna challenge you and say, okay, well, what is the allocator's role here? What is the allocator's role in the ecosystem? If the boutiques, if we agree that the ecosystem is bigs and boutiques and passive and active, and you need all of the constituents in order to make the world a great place, then what's the allocator's role and how can they do better in giving boutiques a chance? Because I feel that's become even more and more challenging for boutiques and specialists.
0: That is a billion dollar question. And it's a challenging answer because it really starts to peel back the onion on on some hard truths that are out there, which is also there are often too many cooks in the kitchen when it comes to decision making you have frontline analysts, you have their superiors, you have investment committees, you have all these kind of entities that are involved in the decision-making and some are so far removed from the active part of the process that the decision is at the end of the day being made kind of on fables and and untruths and, and just a lack of kind of information. So there isn't necessarily a perfect solution to that other than it's part of the allocator's job to push harder and to to maybe reach out to the other parts of their ecosystem decision-making tree earlier on in the process and get them along that journey earlier in the process. If you know you have all these different bodies that are going to be involved in decision, waiting to the end is too late. And that's another area where you can collaborate with boutiques because here's the beauty of boutiques they're talking to a lot of people too. And maybe they can say something like, hey, we found this effective with this type of client. Here's an idea for you. Because again, once that bond is created, we should be working together and it's not... And again, you brought it up earlier where I'm kind of the thorn sometimes in the side of in a room. And and frequently, I mean, especially when it's been with ESG where I'm like, I've been doing this for a long time. Most of the people I'm trying to kind of convince haven't done it for five minutes, it's a very frustrating aspect. And either you get roll the eyes, uh, you know, let's see what's going on in my foot, like just a lack of paying attention. But that's our job in part to demand the audience to pay attention, to put chips on the table, to push hard. And and again, if you don't, same thing I've said to boutiques, if you don't get the answer you like, push back. Same thing for us with other decision makers. I think that's really important. And I think that's why I brought up earlier also challenging allocators, because I don't know how many, you know, a lot of them are repeating the steps that they learned 20 years ago. And and those are the same steps that somebody else learned 20 years earlier. And it's like, you know, the old EF Hutton commercial or Charles Schwab, which is like, this is the way we've always done it. And it's like, okay, but you know, this isn't 1965 anymore. Like, holy crap, the market has changed dramatically. There are so many more investors, so many different ways to invest, so many different types of investments. Like, The way we did things isn't the way we should still be doing things. There are certain core principles, perhaps, or pillars. But if we haven't changed our style, if we haven't evolved as the markets have evolved, as investments have evolved, as just the whole ecosystem is involved, we need to take a real look in the mirror and be like, what are we doing? And and why are we doing this? Are we just kind of going through the motions? So I, playing devil's advocate, would be the first to critique my field, because I do think we're not doing enough either. I think we can have different perceptions of risk. We often look at risk as safe or not safe and and for me I look at risk as ignoring an opportunity or pursuing an opportunity. Like risk is always like, well this is stable, this is where everybody else is, this is big, it can't fail. I look at risk also as here's a great opportunity that we're ignoring because we're just uncomfortable with with making the tough decision, but that's why clients are paying us. That's that's why there's money in this industry. is is to use our intuition, to use our gut, to use our heart, and not just our mind, and to make some tough decisions. And you're not going to get them all right. Investment managers, if they bet fifty percent, are in the hall of fame. If we get it right fifty percent, we're in the hall of fame. It. I think the expectation is we're not perfect, but don't let perfect get in the way of good enough or pretty damn good. So I think that's important. But I I think it's Starting to change. I feel like there's a little bit of a shift, and some of that might be due to some of the ESG investing stuff. You know, it's just created a little bit of disruption, a little bit of chaos. Thematic investing has helped as well because it's requiring a different way to look at things. I, I'm often insulted when people jump into the purposeful investing, the ESG investing space and just think it's a light switch that they can turn on and start doing. That's that's an insult to a lot of firms and a lot of people who have been doing it for a long time and have literally had to work hard and realize that every day they're learning something new and having to apply something new. But that essence of like the game is never over. I've been doing due diligence for almost 25 years, and I learn something new all the time. So being modest, having humility, being vulnerable, realizing there's always something new, some new way to look at it. If you're a allocator and you're you're also not doing that, you're not trying to still learn and be a sponge. I don't care if you've done it for 50 years, then you're part of the problem not the solution.
1: That is so well said. And I loved your take on risk there because that was something I wanted to talk about, but I think I think I love the answer It's not what I would have thought we'd been talking about, which is there is a risk in just doing the same thing over and over and over again. And being the like, the yes for the same type of managers, the same type of thinking, the same profile, because you've done it before and there's no business risk in it, you just keep doing it. That to me, like, I don't think fund managers really understand how real business risk is to an allocator. If their clients get angry and leave, they're not gonna do that to their business for you, for you, the fund manager, for your fund, no way. If that becomes a business risk for them, they're out. And it makes sense, it is a business, but fund managers don't think about that. They don't think about the seat that the allocator, the whole firm, is in with their clients. That's very, very real to them.
0: Yeah. And we almost have the role of like private investigator, right? If it was so easy to find that kind of hidden gem or that needle in a haystack, we would just do it. (laughs) But we outsource all this. Our industry is, is all about outsourcing, right? It's I have $10. I can either invest it myself or I put it into the system and it gets outsourced into many different pieces. So like if I need to find out somebody something about somebody, you hire a PI and they go do it, but they're supposed to uncover something that isn't in front of their eyes. And I look at the same thing with kind of investing. I think there's a risk to just saying, here's XYZ fund that you've heard of, that you see commercials and billboards for. It's not saying there's something wrong with that, but like, I don't know a lot of clients that are gonna be like, ooh, thanks for giving me a name I've already heard of. Like, (laughs) what is your value add in this then? Like, why am I paying you? So there's a risk from an allocator standpoint to rinse and repeat which I know I'm rinsing and repeating as a phrase but it's like you have to have a little bit of that right you know it's balancing that risk of let me give you something that is outside the box and and is different and might make you at first uncomfortable but let's talk through it and let's see why this might actually be that diamond in the rough or that needle in the haystack
1: I want to transition to Bruce's questionnaire because I know actually speaking of uncomfortable that you're slightly uncomfortable with these questions, which is great news. It'll make it extra fun. But before we do, one other question I have for you is you've actually been in a lot of different types of firms as an allocator. So you worked for a big consulting firm. You worked for a very large kind of multifamily office. Now you work for a single family office. And I'm just curious your perspective. Like we often advise boutiques, like if you're a breakaway from a very large firm, the place that you want to go to first is kind of who had the most money with you at the big when you left. So you think I'm a boutique, I'm going to call any PC or one of the consultants. And it's like, they can't even, they can't even take a flyer on you now. And we typically say, you know, those aren't early adopters. The early adopters are more single family office or, independent RIAs who can make their own decisions. Is that still true? Like, have you found that in your own journey that the family offices and independent firms have more flexibility to collab and to support boutiques or to have more unconventional thinking?
0: I think to a certain extent, yes, but I still think it probably boils down to let's not paint everything with a broad stroke and realize like every situation should be a blank canvas. That you're, you know, Bob Rossing. You're you're slowly adding Happy the little tree and the little cabin and it, right, all that stuff. Like, yeah, for the most part, there's some trends that that exist for a reason, just like there are stereotypes at risk. There's got to be a little bit of truth to it. But yeah, I think more of what you're kind of getting to is like if it feels natural or immediate to go that way, again, pause because is that just because it seems easy and it's the kind of quickest way to get from point A to B. And maybe it makes more sense to look at the type of entities that have demonstrated a history just because of who they are to kind of veer off kind of the traditional course. And yeah, you you can always send out a fly. If you worked at a big firm who worked with a big consulting firm and you have a good relationship and you want to say, hey, you know, I've started my own thing. Yeah. You know, a lot of those firms have these kind of emerging manager kind of programs and platforms. and And maybe there's, an opportunity there, but that, you know, you can't throw a Hail Mary. That's kind of a Hail Mary. Like that can't be your whole offensive plan. First and 10 from the 20 and we're throwing a Hail Mary on the first play. Like that's your whole game plan. No, your, your game plan's got to be like, let's look at, yeah, I think RIAs, diamonds and foundations. Those just more, if you're a boutique, look at boutique firms.
1: Thank you. <laughs> right? like, I mean, it seems so simple, but yet it's not. And so I've seen managers literally come to me and be like, well, I was at this big firm. This client had a billion dollars with us. So in my business plan here, I've got them earmarked for $200 million. And it's like, oh, what's your AUM right now? They're like 15 million. And you're like, well, that's not going to (laughs) happen anytime soon. And that's where it's like you're just setting yourself up to disappoint your own team, yourself, because you're expect and you don't have to. Your expectations are you're just coming from the wrong place. That's just not real. That's not really going to happen.
0: And think about it. If the large asset manager loses a $200 million allocation, they can almost do this. If a boutique loses 200000000 million, you're on life support. So go find the stickier asset places, right? Where maybe it is singles and doubles. It's the same phrase we use with how you invest. Like singles and doubles can lead to a Hall of Fame career. And I know I've overused my sports analogy allocation for the day. But the truth of the matter is, is like you're trying to build on singles and doubles, find firms that kind of allocate in singles and doubles, and then you'll get bigger. And, And even though I hate a lot of the... Kind of industry trademark standards of three years and $100 million, because I'm like, that ignores possibility and potential. That aspect still exists in some minds. And it might take a while before people are willing to kind of at least make those benchmarks less visible or less applicable. But because they still are, to your point, you have 15 million, you're going for a 200 million allocation. Like, I mean, there are a lot of firms that have risk policies that, like, we can't be more than 10 or 15% then that's just not your way so the fastest way from point a to b is often the riskiest versus the best so i think you brought up a great point that is super important to just be mindful of and it it does mean working harder rolling up your sleeves having some late nights and sweating but like isn't that why you're in this industry is is to make it work like otherwise you know there are many other professions out there and i i know that's a that's a hard truth but the reality is is it it's not for everyone and I've seen a lot where it's not, but it's, it's important to have that reflection time in the mirror and not just point out the window and be like, we're going to do it like they did it.
1: That's right. Boutiques, find boutiques. They get each other. I love that. That's such an awesome point that you drove home. Thank you, John. All right. So now, without further ado, you better have a sip of your coffee, my friend. Proust Questionnaire. Here we go. You're on the hot seat. Okay. What book inspires you?
0: Okay, <laughs> here's a recurring theme. There's never a quick answer, because I'm an avid reader. So like, so many books have meant a lot, but I I could only narrow it down to two books. The first one is Psychology of Investing, and I read this early two thousands, and it was my first introduction into like behavioral investing, like the aspects of it's not. Just quantitative, it is qualitative. The whole theory of all investors are rational and all those kind of things. Like it broke down a lot of barriers and got me to think as investors, as humans, not as data points. And when I read that 20 years ago, it and it's a tiny little book that's had seven, eight different editions, but it was big. And then kind of a fun book. I usually read a lot of nonfiction. I love to read about Truman and Washington and all them, but A book called Ghost Wave, which is the story of – there's a place called Cortez Bank off of the uh, coast of California where it's like this mountain in the middle of the Pacific Ocean that big wave surfers many years ago went to go find because it's like this 100-foot wave. And I'm a passionate big wave surfer fan. I'm terrified of heights. I don't like flying. I don't think I could ever actually do it, but I love surfing. It's been in my blood. I think there's a peace and tranquility about surfers. And I love this because it's this whole story of like capsized ships that used to go through like this whole history of this wave. And then the story of these guys that are like crazy, right? You have to be crazy to, to surf a hundred foot wave. But it's a lot of what we've talked about today, which is like this pursuit of what's in here and using a little bit of what's down here in your gut to do it, and this this kind of perseverance to find it, and then just this super reward of finding this like in the middle of the ocean. So go, it's called Ghost Wave, and it just it resonates with me on so many different factions, and it, it just makes you feel alive. So James Lipton would have already kicked me off the stage for for my elongated answer, but it's you, it's you, not him.
1: Yes, it's in. It, we're inspired by him, but we we make it our own. Okay, so yes. right. Speaking of inspiring, we're going to stay in that category. What place inspires you? What's your happy place?
0: The inspiring place is probably Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I am a lifelong UNC fan. I did not go there, but I have been, since it's the first team I started rooting for at like four. And every time I go there, which is as often as I can, you see me like levitated. I'm almost floating. <laughs> when I'm on campus, when I'm walking along Franklin Street. So it's a place that just makes me feel alive. But my happy, happy place is, and this is gonna be corny, but it's it's obviously in Annapolis, usually with my with my best friend, my my oldest dog Bruce, you know, anywhere next to me. So I could be on a boat with him, by the pool with him, sitting on the couch with him. My happy place is where I am, which is why there's Annapolis everywhere here that I kind of found a place where I put my anchor down and it's a place I think I've always been looking for and finally kind of live. So it just, I am truly thankful and have such gratitude for finding my home here. And, you know, it does truly make me happy. And I, when I leave it, I can't wait to get back to it.
1: It's so great because people underestimate how powerful it is to love where you live.
0: Yes. And I've lived places. I, haven't loved so when you do find it it's like finding love with humans right you just know well
1: that's great sister city high five from Newport okay let me just paint a little picture here (laughs) he's already shaking his head
0: if it's a question I think it's a hard one
1: (laughs) yeah it is you're gonna take the stage my friend you're gonna take the stage in a big stadium you're gonna give a talk to boutiques about you know how they can how they and there's thousands of boutiques and that what is the song? What's your walkout anthem? What do they play as you take the stage?
0: This is the hardest question in the world, because I'm one of those people who for the last 25 to 30 years, I've played my like life as a movie and have created a soundtrack for it. Like when this happened, this song would play. And when this happens, this song would play like, oh, the who's going to play this song right now. And so it's an impossible question to answer, but I'll I'll give two answers, which will have two stories. So first, my wedding, it was a Led Zeppelin wedding. We we hired a string quartet to play our walk in song, to play our walk out song, to play our first dance song. So almost any any Zeppelin song, but honestly, the one that's probably most appropriate is Ramble On because I do tend to ramble on. <laughs> so it would also let my audience know oh shit, look what's coming.
1: Cancel your dinner reservation because we're going to be here a while.
0: (laughs) I know it says an hour, but this whole introduction will be an hour. The second song is a little more melancholy, but one of my best friends, Kevin, passed away 10 years ago and it was sudden and it sucked and it still sucks. But... Afterwards, we wanted to put together kind of like a little video documentary. So me and my friend put it together same of the story of my life. We had all these videos and pictures we created. And we had, to, I, my contribution was putting songs to pictures and videos. And one video we have of him is he was taping himself, driving down the highway with his glasses on. This dude was the coolest cat in the world. know he was playing Long Way to the Top by ACDC. It's a long way to the top to rock and roll. It's a great song. It reminds me of him who has been here every day since he's left. But what not it an applicable song to what we've talked about today, especially about boutiques, because it is a long way to the top. But if you want to rock and roll, this is what you got to do. So that would be another song.
1: Thank you for sharing that. And I applaud your vulnerability because I know that's not easy to talk about. So thank you for sharing that. You're walking the talk, my friend. OK, switching gears a bit what profession other than your own would you like to attempt
0: anytime before the last 10 years I would have said like sports writer but sports have become a little bit less of a thing for me I actually would be like a therapist not like a psychiatrist where I have to like but like a therapist like I like to hear what's going on with people and see if I can talk with them through it like I used to think that meant like working in HR or something like that but it it would be talking with people and seeing if I can talk through things and, and help them. So I, I think it's a really important thing, mental and physical therapy, but I, I don't think I'd be a very good physical therapist, but I, I think I could be a pretty damn good mental therapist, but we'll see.
1: I love that. That was a surprising answer. See, this is why this is a thing, right? Because we're learning so much about you. Okay. What profession would you not like to do? Politician. That comes up a lot. Probably not surprising. <laughs> yeah.
0: In my heart of hearts, I'd love to put a bulldozer to the wall, but I don't think I could play the game that so many have to play. It's a game of facade, not a game of facts. And I just couldn't do it anymore. But, you know, the second answer would be I'm a child of two teachers and my wife is a child of two teachers and we both love and appreciate teachers, but it is such a hard profession right now, the responsibilities that are put upon teachers. I thought about it even years ago of like, I should get into that profession. It's in my blood. I'd love to do it. But then I'm also like, am I just walking into a, you know, a trap? So um, I don't want my answer to come across as I don't love teachers. My best friend's a teacher, but what a hard, hard, hard profession. But politician would be definitely it because it's just so ugly now.
1: Yes. Both very, very well said. Okay, last, but certainly not least, what do you want people to say about you after you've retired or left the industry?
0: Poof, Probably something along the lines of like, wow, that was an honest one. <laughs> he didn't give a f-
1: that that's so great and how empowering to like live that every day because then as and it's kind of like full circle here we're sort of ending where we started which is I bet there's a lot of people who worked with you that said that (laughs) and still say that
0: (laughs) and I think you can speak to this as well like I don't want to confuse that as I don't care I probably care too much But I don't care about the things that we really shouldn't care about. And I do care about the things we probably don't care enough about. So it is kind of like my wife always says, like, sometimes just tell people what they want to hear. And I'm like, I just don't have that in my DNA. I tell them the truth. My candor is my strength, but also my weakness. But, you know, I think that's why people would just say, wow, that was an honest one.
1: Well, for all the people who appreciate having an honest one in their network and in their ecosystem, where can people connect with you, follow along? Like, what's the best way to get into John Tenero's world?
0: I've kind of re- reappeared back on LinkedIn. I, I think me and you both agree it's such a wonderful tool. It's not social media. And if we are using it as that, we're not using it right. But I, I really want, you know, I'm trying to be more contributive and participating, but I think it's a great spot. That said listen to this podcast. LinkedIn isn't an open invitation to send me a cold call through a message or say like, Hey, I don't know who you are, but here's my product. I'm selling you. Like if you want to reach out and say, hi, I'd love to talk and connect and you know learn about you and you learn about me. And if that's the end, great. But if you're coming to me pitching, I don't have a bat in my hand. I'm not swinging.
1: That's brilliant. And you heard it here first. Don't pitch slap john and his linkedin dms is not going to get you very far people first well my friend what a pleasure what a great great opportunity for all our listeners to get a chance to know you and the advice has been priceless as it always is and honest so thank you
0: well thank you for having me and i thank you for doing this i think you're you're giving a wider audience some unbelievable insights and, and things to think about, which we all, we all need to do. So thank you to you and, and to your whole crew at Havner. You guys are, are great.
1: Thank you, John.
2: This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation of any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. Investment values may fluctuate and past performance is not a guide to future performance. All opinions expressed by guests on the show are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect those at their firm. Manager's appearance on the show does not constitute an endorsement by Stacey Havener or Havener Capital Partners.